Today's scripture is from Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 23. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, the word of the Lord. We're starting this year, seems like the year started a long time ago, but let's say we're starting this year, it's still January, in a new series called Embodied, and we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the body. Now, why are we doing that? A number of reasons. For me, and I think for most Christians that I I know and talking with you the past few weeks, there is a tendency to overlook the body. There's kind of a second place status that we give to the body when it comes to our spiritual lives. And when we think about what it means to walk with God, we think, oh, the body is kind of in the background. It's secondary to spiritual matters and that sort of thing. But that is not how the Bible regards the body. So I felt it was important for us to do some corrective learning for myself and for all of us as a church. We need to align how we see and treat our bodies with the way God does. And we've been talking about that the past few weeks. In addition to that, it seems to me very important in our cultural moment now where we are living. Especially important because issues of the body are not in the background in, in the matters that our culture is, is dealing with, thinking about, and so many of our issues that are contentious and difficult. As we grapple with technology and AI, and as we think about what it means to work from home, as we live through what many call the epidemic of loneliness, as we discuss matters of sexuality and gender, the value of bodies from womb to tomb. All these things put the body in the forefront, in the foreground. These are all issues of embodiment at the core. We need biblical wisdom to think about these things to engage. So, so far, three messages in, I've received a lot of confirmation from many of you that this is a somewhat new or newer way for many of us to think about the body, to place it in the forefront the way the scriptures do that we have an embodied God who is incarnate in Jesus Christ, that we are made embodied 
persons, and we've laid the foundation of that. And in that laying of the foundation, my goal was to present largely a positive view of the body as a gift, as good, as a wonder that every body is made and crafted and formed and valued by God, that our bodies are accepted, that our bodies are pleasing and holy in Christ. It's important to begin with this foundation. But after my message two weeks ago, I had a few conversations before and after church, and I received a very heartfelt but honest email and had actually a great and honest conversation on my plane ride to St. Louis where I was taking a class that I've shared with you, many of you, um, on the theology of the body. So I had a conversation on the plane. Um, And all these conversations had one common theme. If the body is so good, such a great gift, and so valued by God, what about the suffering we experience in the body? What about being born with some kind of bodily condition? Maybe it's a kind of disability. Maybe it's having a bodily injury that is ongoing or an ailment of the body that affects our everyday life. Maybe it's an illness or a disease that is slowly deteriorating our body. What about the bodily changes that come with aging? And I know that many of you here are suffering in these ways. And I know many of you even online that are a part of our church community. You can't be here with us because you are suffering in these ways. Your body doesn't feel like a wonder. It feels like your enemy, that your body is against you, against your, ha- <clears throat> excuse me, your happiness, your well-being, and you're thinking, if I just had a different body or a better body, I would be whole and happy. When we're dealing with these things, we feel like my body is defining me in a way that I don't want. I'm the sick one. I'm the aging one. I'm the one with a certain bodily condition. So this wasn't on my initial list of topics, but after the first few weeks, I felt like this has to be on the list. So we're going to talk this morning about embodied suffering. What about embodied suffering? What does the Bible teach us about how to make sense of it and how to handle it when it comes? And I know you're all listening from different places. Some of you are right there right now. And you need this now. But we will all need this at some point. And if you will, would you, I just feel the need to pray before we engage with this because, because of the many people in our church family who are right there right now. And I need the Lord's strength that the words I say would bring encouragement to those who need it now and for the future when we deal with these things. So just let me pray before we begin. <clears throat> Father, I pray that even as I feel the words whether on this paper or come out of my mouth, are inadequate to meet those who are suffering in these ways right now. I pray that you would use your word, you would use your spirit, you would speak hope and encouragement and life to those who need it most. For those who are dealing with bodily suffering now, today, right here, And that you would use your word to equip those of us who will deal with it at a later day. 
I know I, I need your spirit. We need your spirit to show up and minister and teach us. And that is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Uh, there are three things that I want to look at based on this text and the Second Corinthians text that is there um, in your bulletins for reference. I want to talk about them one at a time. How do we make sense of suffering? How do we handle it when it comes, especially suffering of the body? First, we need to consider rightly. Consider rightly. Look at verse 18 with me in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For I consider... And we need to pause right there. It's important we spend time on just this one phrase before moving on. Paul says, for, because he's connecting what he's saying here to what came before this. He's explaining his previous point in verse 17. And in the context, Romans chapter 6 through 8, in the letter of Romans, Paul is talking about here the process of transformation, the process of how we change. He says in verse 17, if you look at that, there is something that is necessary. It's a necessary part of our full transformation. It's a necessary part of being glorified with Christ. Being glorified meaning being made new, being made whole, becoming our true selves. That is what being glorified means according to Paul. What is it that is a necessary part of becoming our Glorious selves, he says it is suffering. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And Paul knows this is not what we want to hear. He knows what we want to hear is that God will lead us to glory around suffering. Over (laughs) suffering. That's what we want to hear, but he says it's through suffering that we become our full and true selves, our glory selves, like Jesus. Since this is not what we hope to hear, Paul is inviting us to his own thinking. He says, I consider, I'm going to share with you, the Apostle Paul, my inspired thinking about suffering and how it has been changed by Jesus Christ. For he says right here, for I consider, the word consider, it means to think about, it means to take a mental inventory, it means to reckon and gather up my thoughts. To handle suffering well, this passage is saying, we have to consider it rightly. We have to think about it rightly. We have to gather up our thoughts and reckon with it and not avoid it. So I mentioned I had a conversation on the plane ride over to St. Louis, and um, <clears throat> the, my seatmate over here, uh, we started talking, and I shared, I'm going to go to a class, and he's like, what's a the class? I said, theology of the body. <clears throat> it turned out, um, my friend Charlie, if you're out there, Charlie, hi. Um, my friend Charlie had served in a Christian ministry, he was a Christian, and, but he said he'd been through... He was like, that's an interesting topic, but I've been through uh, some struggles, and and even as I was serving in ministry, and I've been a Christian for a long time, do you know what was missing for me when it comes to like a theology of the body that I didn't have? 
He said, a theology of suffering. And when it came in my life, I didn't know how to think about it. I wasn't prepared for it at all. And he said he's sharing a little bit about his journey, about how it took him a long time to work through that. He said, I never even considered a theology of suffering until it happened. And it's, it's not too late when suffering hits for us to begin thinking about it, but it's so much harder. When we haven't considered it, when we've avoided thinking about it, we add on top of the bodily suffering that we're experiencing, the suffering of the spiritual shock between us and God. God, this is not what you promised. I thought it was around. I thought it was over suffering. This is not what I expected, not what I signed up for, God. And so Paul is saying here, consider with me the sufferings of this present time. What's included in the sufferings of this present time? Well, I like one commentator's list. He said, sickness, disabilities, bodily pain, mental pain, poverty, isolation, and grief. All these things are experienced in our bodies. But these are not things we like to think about. These are not things we like to consider, especially in our culture. This is not how we like to think as Americans. In our culture, by and large, we avoid considering suffering, especially bodily suffering. Suffering like this is handled in hospitals. We don't like to go there. Or facilities for that. We value the fit and the strong and the healthy and the young bodies. When people age, often they're also in places where we don't see them. When it comes to poverty, that's handled by agencies over there or in that place. In our culture, we are experts at avoiding, ignoring, and try to push away bodily suffering. But verse 18 says we can't do this. In fact, an essential part of Christian discipleship is considering embodying suffering. When it comes, Paul is saying, you don't want to not be prepared because most likely when it comes, if that's the first time you're thinking about it, you will think wrongly about it. In this present time, Paul says, we will experience bodily suffering. Christianity, he's saying here, doesn't promise a way out of this or a way around it. But also, and this is an important part that we have to be thinking about prior to when suffering comes, Christianity doesn't put the blame on us for our suffering either. This means your personal embodied suffering that you're experiencing now or maybe in the future is not punishment. And in most cases, not God's discipline for something you've done, not a sign you are doing something wrong. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Jesus, it says, was passing by. He's walking. He saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, he was born blind, or his parents? Because he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Jesus says, this is not the result of somebody's sin. Not his parents or this man. 
But God is doing something in this suffering. And God is working in this suffering. And that's an important thing we need to have considered prior to suffering coming into our lives. Let me share a quote from Sam Albury in his great book, On the Body. He says, The main connection between suffering and sin is at a general humanity-wide level rather than an individual level. It is not one person's suffering is a sign of his or her sin, but that anyone's suffering is a sign of everyone's sin. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. He's saying we live in a world that is groaning. The physical world, including our bodies, is groaning in futility. There is a fallenness to our human experience. But when we feel like Oh, I did something to deserve this bodily suffering. You feel like this is a result of something I did. The Gospel of John, and here in Romans, Paul is saying, that is not the case. We don't bear the weight of that considering wrongly I deserve this. Jesus says that is not the case. And so, a few thoughts before we move on. I just want to make sure I ask this question in light of this. Have you considered this? Have you considered embodied suffering? Don't avoid it. Don't wait until it happens. If we have not, if we do not consider it rightly, it can crush us when it happens. It can turn us inward. It can define us. I was listening to an interview this week by um, the, inter- the, the person being interviewed was Tabitha Kapich. She's the wife of Kelly Kapich who wrote a book on embodied suffering. They were both being interviewed and she um, suffers from a chronic physical condition and she said this, every day your pain and suffering tries to be your identity. It will shape your identity but every day is fighting to say my identity is not that but it is in Christ. When bodily suffering comes, it tries to be our biggest reality, the only story. And hear what Tabitha Kapich is saying, it isn't. There is a bigger reality, a bigger story. When we consider this, we can face suffering with hope, we can endure, and we can wait with patience, as Paul says. Now what does it look like to do that? How do we consider it rightly and gain perspective on the bigger story? That's my second point. We consider it rightly, and secondly, we compare accurately. When bodily suffering hits us, one of the ways we wrongly think about it or consider it is by comparing. We compare our bodily health and abilities and suffering to other people's. We compare the bodily condition that we have to the one we wish we had or daydream about the life and how it would be in that body or the body that I once had. And it can be obsessive, it can be all-consuming because it seems so unfair. But just like body image issues that we talked about a few weeks ago, that can't be solved by comparison, comparing our bodies to other people, the way they look. It's the same when it comes to bodily suffering. It can just lead us to an endless cycle of envy, the pursuit of a mirage. If only I was this healthy, if only I had that condition, then I would be happy. 
but it's understandable why we do this. It's natural to wonder, why do I have this condition and ailment and struggle and that, and they don't? My life would be so much happier, so much more productive if I only had the healthy, ailment-free body that I once had. It's very understandable. It's very natural that we do that. And because this is so natural to us to compare, it's, it's very interesting that Paul says to us here, he doesn't say, don't compare. He says, to compare, but compare accurately. Look with me. Again in verse 18. For I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And if you look at the passage on page 6, printed 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he says something similar in this letter. He says, we do not give up, we don't grow weary. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Paul says, do compare your present sufferings and affliction, but not to others, not to the body you once had. Compare your broken and ailing and hurting and suffering body to the glorious body you will have. Compare the body that seems like your enemy, that's bearing you down, to the glory that will be revealed, the greater eternal weight of glory And when you do, Paul is saying, you'll see it's not even worth comparing. The glory that awaits is absolutely incomparable. The original language there, Paul uses the word that we get the word hyperbole from. He's like, and he uses it twice. It's like a hyperbole of hyperbole. I can't even explain to you, he's saying, the glory that awaits. In verse 23, Paul says, this is where everything in The story of this world is moving. Where does it conclude? Verse 23 says, at the very last phrase, with the redemption of our bodies. This is the grand finale. It's what all creation is waiting for. This is the larger story, the glorious freedom that awaits your body. Paul says it is going to be. It eagerly awaits. It's not a doubt in hope we wait for it. We will be set free. And so... We compare our present suffering to the glory that will be revealed. And Paul says when we do that, we say it's not even worth comparing. I couldn't even come up with the illustration to try to explain this. It's like the taste of a saltine cracker versus the taste of the finest steak we could ever imagine. Hey, which one is better? Would you like to compare those? I can't even compare those. It's like the light of a tiny candle compared to the light of a sunrise. How do you compare the two? It's like a seesaw, you know, eternal weight of glory. It's like a seesaw where one full-size adult is sitting and one small child is sitting. The child will never move the full-size adult. Paul says, no eye has seen well, Isaiah says this, and Paul is saying it in his language. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And I want you to hear this and store it away for later if you're not there now. Your bodily suffering is not a sign God has abandoned you or that you are of no use to him or that you are in the wrong body. It is a sign for all of us that God is not done with us yet. 
But the story, the larger story, the greater reality is not our suffering. Our suffering is part of a larger story that ends with the redemption of our bodies. A glory we cannot even imagine. So, Pastor Eric, do I just hold on till then? What about now when it hurts, when it feels so far off? Are you saying, suffer now and you'll be rewarded in heaven? And grin and bear it and just get through it? No, that is not all. We must consider our embodied suffering rightly. We must compare it accurately. And lastly, and I hope this is very practical, we must groan confidently. Look at verse 23. This is a very practical, very bodily application A spiritual discipline that maybe no one talks about or maybe we've never heard about. But I realize and I want to show you it's clearly taught and given to us for our embodied suffering. What do we do? Thinking is important, but it's not enough. We groan. Look at verse 22 and 23. Now we know the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4, Paul says the same thing in a different way. He says, we know, verse 1 of 5, if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. There are two things that Paul is holding together here that are held together in the groaning that he's talking about. There is real and deep pain and hurt and confusion and real hope and deep confidence. This is the kind of groaning Paul is talking about. We know what it's like to groan in pain and sigh in pain. You know, when you're tired and you're getting up out of a chair and maybe you realize this as you're getting older, like, why am I groaning every time I get up out of a chair? Oh, you know, it's like that. And sometimes Amelia, my wife, will just point out to me when I'm fixing something. Usually I'm trying like to get underneath a cabinet or something like that or work on something. Like I'm just groaning and moaning the whole time. Like, Why are you doing that? You sound like an old man, but you know, it's like, I am. I am. This is hard. I'm getting old. We know a little bit of what it's like to groan and sigh when something's hard, when things hurt. There's no word for it when we really hurt. We just, we groan. But there's also a kind of groaning when we're looking forward to something, we don't have the words, right? Like, I don't know, if we're going to Disneyland, we're like, oh, I can't wait. There's a bit of groaning, right? I can't wait for this thing to happen. Mm. I've been practicing these groans. I'm trying to like, <laughs> everybody has their own unique groan. Maybe we should practice. It, you know, this is a family service, so let's just practice. Sometimes I like to teach a word to our kids, but I'm going to teach you this practice of groaning, so let's do this together. What is a good groan? Let's groan together. Oh, there we go. Okay. Corporate groaning. 
This is the kind of groaning Paul is talking about where both are held together. I'd like to share a graphic here. I borrowed this from Kelly Capich, the husband of uh, Tabitha Capich, who I quoted earlier in an interview. He wrote a book called Embodied Hope that I recommend to you. It's on our resource table. This is what the gospel offers us in our embodied suffering. Not the top left, where we're just confident with, with no groaning, where there's a naive optimism. Just like, oh, life is going to be fine, it's going to be great. That's naive. That's not dealing with life as it is. Not beneath that, no confidence and no groaning, where we just detach. Life is suffering, I'm going to detach. That is not Christianity. Not no confidence and only the hurting kind of groaning, because that is despair. Unrelenting despair. But we are offered the practice of confident groaning. Confidence and groaning. That's faithful suffering. Paul uses a metaphor for this. What is this like? He says it's like the groaning of labor pains. Now, obviously, I know nothing personally about the groaning of labor pains from my own body. I've never groaned in labor. But I was, maybe still am, I don't know, a certified husband childbirth coach. Thank you. One person clapped, I think. <laughs> it's been a while, but I do remember what we were taught. Mainly my wife was taught in our childbirth classes to get through the labor pains of childbirth, understand what is happening to your body. Learn about it. Learn about everything that this is why this is happening. This is why this part of my body is hurting and in excruciating pain. I know I'm going to groan, but if I understand what is happening and why, and we won't go into all the details here, then I realize all this pain is producing the most glorious thing that can be produced in this world. Another human being made in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. Paul is saying that's the metaphor, that's the picture. It's so hard to say anything about bodily suffering that honors the difficulty and not explaining it away, but also honors the incomparable glory that awaits and not toning down what the Bible says about that. The pain of labor is real and the glory of labor is real. And the practice of groaning holds these together. It's a very important part of being embodied. We have to learn the spiritual discipline of groaning. We've heard of reading the Bible. We've heard of silence and fasting. But we need groaning as well. In the book of Exodus, God heard the groaning of his people. And he responded. Job groaned. He said, my groans pour out like water. He was commended. Job did not sin. His groaning was not a sin. The Psalms in many places, the psalmist groans. I think of God, I groan. Psalm 77. I complain and groan morning, noon, and night. That is a lot of groaning. And God hears my voice. Psalm 55, 17. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my tears with groaning. Psalm 31, 10. And a little bit later in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, God groans too. The Holy Spirit groans with us. Romans 8, 26. We groan confidently not because we're promised, 
a compensation prize for our suffering. God's not saying, you went through all this, so here, now you get to have glory. You endured, so your consolation prize is the new creation. That's not what is being said. Something much more profound is being said here. If you look at verse 17, suffer with him, he says, so that we might be glorified with him. Somehow the suffering is resulting in glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, our momentary light affliction is producing, is producing the eternal weight of glory. How can we be confident that this embodied suffering that is so hard, so difficult, so painful, will result in glory, will produce glory? Paul is saying, look to the suffering and the glory of Jesus. That is our confidence. That's how we can groan with confidence. Verse 18, he says, verse 17 and 18, he says, our suffering, we suffer with him, will be like his. We are glorified with him. Our glory will be like his. In Psalm 22, that was the psalm that was on Jesus' mind and heart when he suffered bodily on the cross. The first part is familiar maybe to many of you where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know the rest of verse 1? It says, why are you so far from my deliverance? And from my words of groaning, his groaning, Jesus in his suffering on the cross was groaning. It was a groaning of pain. It was a groaning of bearing our sins. It was a groaning of bearing the curse, but it was also a groaning of confidence. I feel abandoned, but you are still my God My God, you are still my God. You will turn this suffering to glory. God's answer to the question of God, why the suffering? What am I supposed to do with the suffering? What is happening? Is not an explanation. It's not written neatly anywhere where we could say, this is the explanation of my suffering. God's answer to our suffering in the body is the groaning of Jesus the eternal Son of God. Jesus' groaning is a groan that guarantees we will be saved from our greatest suffering, the greatest suffering of all, a life separate from God. And it is a groan that guarantees our suffering can and will be turned to glory. The gospel, the message of Christianity is that Jesus' embodied suffering is the most dazzling and beautiful aspect of his eternal embodied glory. Jesus' embodied suffering is the most dazzling and beautiful aspect of who he is now and forever. And I can't explain it, but the hymns do a better job explaining it. So I want to share with you two hymns as we move to a close here. We sang the first one, crown him the Lord of love. Crown him with many crowns. It says, if you look at the reflection quotes the beginning, you can follow along. Crown in the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. 
rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angels in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends their burning eye mysteries so bright. What is so beautiful about Jesus? His rich wounds that are still visible. Not even the angels can bear that. In the hymn by Charles Wesley, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, the dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears, cause of endless exultation to his ransom worshipers. With what rapture, with what rapture, with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars? Why is the body of Jesus so dazzling? Because he bears the tokens of his passion. We gaze on his glory scars and we exult and we rapture. Our bodies will one day be healed and whole for all those who trust in Christ. And yet somehow the suffering we bear in the body, just like Jesus, though we'll be healed and whole, and I have no idea how to explain it, somehow the suffering we've experienced in the body will be a part of the beauty and the glory. It will be transformed. It will be turned into something we can't imagine. And so the Christian, in light of this, when we consider rightly, compare accurately, learn to groan confidently, the Christian does not pray, Lord, give me a comfortable life. Lord, give me a safe life. The Christian prays, Lord, give me a glorious life. Like Jesus. And take my suffering. And even though I can't see how, I trust you that it will be a part of that glorious life, the glorious self. And so in our suffering, we learn to hope, we learn to trust that what is true of Jesus will be true of all who trust in him. Three very quick final applications. God does heal. He answers prayers for healing according to his will. In the book of James, it's very clear what to do when we are sick and suffering. He tells the sick to pray and the elders to anoint and ask for healing. And that's something we want to take seriously as a church. Secondly, the Spirit groans. God the Holy Spirit groans with us in circumstances and situations where He chooses not to heal us. He is with us. He is with us as we wait for our glory selves. And lastly, this could be a whole message, but it's just two sentences here. The goal of the church, the body of Christ, is that when one member suffers, we all suffer. So no one should suffer alone. Those who are groaning, my friends, we should groan alongside them. Let's pray. Our Father,
As we consider these words, these words that even the Apostle Paul struggled to figure out how to describe the reality that our suffering is a part, is connected to, and only makes sense by the story of your son and his suffering. And I pray, especially for those who are there now, groaning now, that they would be comforted to know you were groaning with them. And they might be confident to know they will be glorified with Jesus, redeemed in their bodies. And I pray as a church, as we learn the discipline of groaning confidently, that we wouldn't leave each other alone to do that, but we would rally around one another and groan with each other. And now I pray for us as we come to the table together, that where the words just don't seem like they're getting through to our hearts and souls, where we're trying to consider these things, but it's hard for us to make sense of it. I pray that you would meet and communicate and drive home the hope through this table as we partake of the broken body and the shed blood of your son. That is the guarantee that our suffering does not have the last word. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.